Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Micah chapter 5. But I want to start off with the story which is in your bulletin. man who was a theologian and an author taught theology at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in the United States. He's now in his 80s, but still connected to the seminary. His name is Dr. David Wells. And 30 years ago, he wrote a book which shook many people in the United States in particular. It was called No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. It's a mentally penetrating book. But in the introduction, he makes this startling statement. I have watched with growing disbelief as the Evangelical Church has cheerfully plunged into a astounding theological illiteracy. Wondered how many theologians are here this morning. You talk to some Christians and they say, oh, I'm not a theologian. My reply is, if you're a Christian, you're a theologian. Because we all have a system of theological belief. And we need to be serious about it. And Sir James asked me if at this time of the year I would take this title, The Promise of the Messiah Through the Prophets, leading up to Christmas. And our theological antenna is now working. We need to think, we need to think theologically as believers, not think according to what's happening on the news or sport or any other situation. Genesis 3, we know that this is the first promise of one that would come. It's brought to light in a graphic way for us this morning in Colossians chapter 2. And I want to remind you of that incredible section in Colossians 2 where Paul, in verses 13 to 15, says, and you, so he's talking to the whole church at Colossae, or if you like, the whole church here at Maylands called Bethel. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, having forgiven all our trespasses. Ah, but I left out a couple of significant words. Read it again. God made alive together with him. God made us alive together with his son. He never does anything in our lives apart from Christ. And by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, all of the requirements for us were nailed to the cross when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross and Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him God does everything in Christ now for your homework you can look up Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11 very well known passage in that prophet but I want to turn to Micah chapter 5 
The prophet Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah and he ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom was divided into two sections. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Samaria was the capital in the north, Jerusalem the capital in the south. His compatriots during that time were Amos and Hosea. He comes across as a man of courage, conviction, strong faith, vitally concerned about his nation, about the poor country people who suffered and about the situation of foreign affairs, probably a bit like Australia. Social justice was there, but he knew that social justice or injustice rather could only be removed by revival. And his message was, if we don't return to the Lord, he will send avengers to us. The main country that was the avenging in those days was Assyria, a great world power, a constant threat to the Hebrews. Assyria today corresponds to most parts of Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Syria and Turkey a huge area and Micah's essential message was summed up in his own words of chapter 3 and verse 8 he said but as for me I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob that's the people of God, the covenant people, his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Now some preachers have three points, I've got two. So we just look at these verses as follows. In verses verses 1 to 6, the emphasis on the shepherd. They move us from present distress to future salvation. They move us from the humiliation of Jerusalem's king to Messiah's victory. And they're in verses 2 to 5. And verse 2 is our main emphasis. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem. Who worries about Bethlehem? It was a boil on somebody's backside. That's, that's really the way it was regarded. Who wanted to go to Bethlehem? It was the last place. It didn't appear on any maps, if they had maps. But this is the place of promise that God gives to his people. Bethlehem Ephratah really means insignificant with regard to its existence among the clans of Judah. And the adjective that the, the prophets uses of small or little describes quality, not quantity, as a quality, as a people. They were hopeless, they were down in the dumps. You wouldn't go there, you would turn the other way. They're elsewhere linked with weak and despised. You remember that David was regarded as the least of his brothers. 
but he was the one chosen to be the king. And so Micah comes with this message and he brings out the truth that blessing and restoration is going to emanate from that insignificant place and it will come with Messiah. Do you know that Messiah has come? As Matthew reminds us, that's the important thing. Do you know that Christmas is not just a time for parties but a time to remember that Christ was born in Bethlehem. There are many in the days of Micah and in our day in the church who have turned in upon themselves and substituted for the knowledge of God a search for the knowledge of themselves. We had a neighbour years ago that we knew quite well. She had a couple of kids and I remember she came into the manse on one occasion she was often there not a Christian, not interested in Christian things she came in, this young mother and she said to me oh I'm quite excited I'm going to do a course to find myself and I said ah you won't find yourself until Christ finds you well that was the end of the conversation she did not want to hear that And I never asked her if she ever found herself because you cannot understand yourself, you cannot find yourself, you cannot appreciate what life's about if you're not a believer all the time and other things. And aren't there people in all our churches, as soon as the service ends, the topic of conversation is not the message, it's the football or the cricket or the weather or COVID or something else. We need to share with one another what God says to us from his word that's how you can support James in a real way that after he preaches say to one another well wasn't that a great word and tell James that to encourage him not oh well went a bit long this morning didn't it yeah I I got tired I wasn't interested Our humanity tends to close us in and put us in a bottle with a cork on the end. And we wonder why our theology at times can be so hopeless because we don't grow, we don't get anywhere, we take things for granted. The second part is Micah chapter 5 verses 7 to 15. Verse 7 he talks about the remnant. There is always a remnant. God never is without a remnant. No matter how things work out, there is always a remnant. Micah was gripped by the awareness of the living God in all areas of life. He knew that he was the covenant God, the God of all the nations including Assyria and Assyria was only able to do what they were permitted to do by our Heavenly Father. And no nation on our earth can do anything more than it is permitted to do. Satan cannot do anything more. He is not a law unto himself. You might remember that stupid statement by a television performer years ago where he referred to Satan as his Lord but Satan is under the sovereign command of God. Read the book of Job. 
and find that out for yourself as a theologian. I hope you do. Peter Craigie was a British biblical scholar who sadly was killed in Canada in a road accident. But in his studies on the book of Micah, he wrote this, Micah could see beneath the polished veneer of his society and pick out the fundamental flaws that lay just slightly beneath the surface. All of God's promises were to be fulfilled in the coming of Messiah and his chosen covenant believers, that's us if we're Christians, are the recipients of his grace. But Micah hasn't completed his word to us and I want to direct your attention to some vital truths in this second part of our reading. Will you notice verses 9 to 15? We've talked about the remnant which is mentioned both in verse 7 and verse 8. But notice in verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord, I will, this is God in action, I will cut off your horses from among you, I will destroy your chariots, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw them down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah, the pagan god's images from among you and destroy your cities and in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Does Micah use the words I will because his thesaurus didn't have any other words? He's pointing out the sovereignty of God. It's what God does, not even what the prophet does. It's not what we do. He is the sovereign Lord. We still exercise our free will. We make decisions as Adam did in listening to his wife instead of listening to God. And in fact, in that story, if you remember, it was Eve who talked to the serpent. Adam stood to one side like a dumbass, didn't say anything. Shows us how often when we should speak, we remain silent and listen to the wrong voice. This is the constant emphasis here of the sovereign purposes of God. God says, I will do it. If you remember the end of the book of Malachi, which finishes off the Old Testament, there's the promise of one who was come, Elijah will come, and it was to be John the Baptist. If we could imagine for a minute the book of Micah, finishing off what we call the Old Testament, has just been published. And there's some people like us sitting down, oh, we must read this. Let's look at the end of the book and find out what happened. And so we read the end of the book of Micah and we discover that there is one who was to come. Great, we'll look forward to this. Did they see that one that was to come? No. 400 years of silence. 
400 of our years when God did not speak through the prophet. They had the word, the written word, which we call the Old Testament, but God did not speak. Sometimes we think things should happen according to our timetable. God has his own purposes. And if we focus on him instead of all the time thinking of what we want, it makes all the difference. Well, you might say, it's good that I can, I can respond and I can help God in the ministry and I can do this. Well, I conclude with John Calvin, no relation by the way, with John Calvin's word at the end of that, what's in your bulletin. He comments on verse 2. For Bethlehem, which was so small as not even to be numbered among the other cities of Judah, signifies that the Son of God's majesty was not dependent on this world. Consequently, we must realise that we have nothing to offer him and that he relies on nothing in us for our salvation. But it all comes from him. It all comes from him. Now Calvin is refuting here the semi-Pelagian view which stemmed from a guy named Pelagius at the time of Augustine. Augustine was the apostle of grace. Pelagius, as the name suggests, we've got to do our part. He didn't believe in original sin. And Calvin here is emphasising this. He addressed this in 1547 in his book The Antidote to the Council of Trent which point is that men are justified partly by grace and partly by their own work. Haven't you heard Christian people say oh but we've got to do our bit. We've got to do better. We don't do any bit at all. We are called to obey. God doesn't need our help. He needs our obedience. That's what we're called for as believers. Becoming a Christian is not a case of Christ and us working together. It is all of grace. It is all from his hand. I often think back of the thief on the cross. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. One man heard, the other man didn't hear. One man continued to swear and blaspheme and the other one said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And I think of two men going into paradise and the angels are rejoicing because there's Jesus coming into Oh, hang on, who's the other guy? What's going on? We didn't know about this. Another man from the cross. We don't know his name. But we will meet him in glory. We will meet him. And we will talk to him. Because, as Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. One man heard, one man didn't. My friends, 
Have you heard that there is forgiveness, total forgiveness in Christ and his grace? We'll pray.